All right, good morning. Hear me? Okay, good. All right, well, if you want to go and open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21, that's where we're going to be this morning. We've got a lot to cover, So, um, but before you get started, just want to say glad to be here. Uh, you guys have been really welcoming already. I know Travis and Jana have been great to stay with as well and uh, really enjoyed being here so far in the even just a short amount of time we've been here. So hopefully we get to meet a lot more of you guys. Uh, you know, come up to us, please. Talk to us. Uh, we want to meet as many of you as we can. Uh, we don't bite. My wife does, but I don't. Um, but uh, no, she's great. Abby is, uh, you'll learn very quickly, my better half for sure. Um, so this morning what we're talking about is uh, the clash of kingdoms is kind of how I've, I've framed this class this morning. We're talking about Matthew 25, or 21 through 25, kind of a big section. So we're, we're going to kind of hit the high points. Um, I know you guys have already covered things like the temple cleansing, so we're not going to have to talk about that. Um, But really, what I want to get across this morning is really, um, or let me show you the outline for this this morning first. So just to kind of get our footing in the text where we're at, we're going to really stay in Matthew. I know you guys have been kind of bouncing around in different Gospels, um, but this one... Uh, this class, we're, we're just going to stay right in Matthew. Um, so starting in Matthew 21, we get, we're going to start with the entrance into Jerusalem, Jesus' triumphant entry, um, where he's kind of hailed and praised as a king. And then from there, we see, obviously, as Jesus you know, comes into Jerusalem presenting himself as a king, uh, he's you know, coming and he's going to be getting his authority constantly challenged time and time again by all these different Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, Sadducees the Herodians at times, um, and so he's going to be constantly defending his authority, defending uh, his kingship there in Jerusalem. And then we get some three parables. I, I, while I was studying for this, I really enjoy uh, Jesus when he comes in Jerusalem. Man, does he take the gloves off. Let me tell you what. And every single one of these parables that we'll look at, and they're very familiar, so we won't have time to read them all, but, and, uh, but he really takes the gloves off on the Jewish leader's um, here, and then again, authority is going to be challenged, and then we get kind of into the fifth sermon in Matthew. If you're not familiar, there's kind of five major, <clears throat> excuse me, discourses that occur, preaching sections in Matthew, and this is the final one in Matthew, and this is where we get the woes of the Pharisees, which we won't be able to cover, um, and then the fall of Jerusalem, that kind of apocalyptic discourse where Jesus is now judging these Jewish leaders for having rejected him. And then after that, you get kind of three eschatological or end times kind of parables looking forward to the judgment day um, and that are all really familiar to us as well. So if we're going to summarize this section, what we, want to, what we want to kind of be conveyed this morning is really the idea that as Jesus has entered Jerusalem, uh, he's going to, his conflict with the Jewish leaders is really going to kind of come to a head. It's coming up to a boiling point. And so Jesus, he's going to be first, this is his first public proclamation as king, even though if you read back in Matthew 16, you know, Peter professes Christ to be the the Messiah, the Son of the living God, right? But um, this is the first actual public demonstration where Jesus kind of owns this. And so, of course, his authority is going to be repeatedly challenged, but through all of these uh, different situations with these Jewish leaders, Jesus is going to consistently show himself to be the, the rightful uh, interpreter, the rightful teacher of the law, as well um, as the rightful king, the true son of David, as we're going to see. So let's begin just by reading t- uh, Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11 to get started. And like I said, we won't read everything this morning, but 
we'll start at least in this this uh, this section because it's just a fun one to read. So let's start in verse one. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them. Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So right off the bat, there's a lot of things that kind of stand out in the text. What are some of the things that stand out to you as you read the text? Just give me a couple things. What about... Kind of a parade. Uh, It's not a parade, but he's not trying to hide. Yeah, it's a, a procession, right? Yeah, it's a very much a royal procession. It's very public... It's right there at the front of Jerusalem. This is not something happening on a back street or a back alley yeah, or a back room. What else? What's he riding? Riding a donkey, right? What's that about? That's kind of weird. We'll talk about that in a second. What are, the, what are they doing? What are the people doing? Ma'am? Praising him? Yeah, yeah. What are they, call, what are they saying? Yeah, Hosanna, Son of David, those type of things. We'll talk about what that means. Son of David's kind of a big theme in this section, especially even in chapter 20 with the two blind men. Um, interestingly, you know, if you look through the book of Matthew, I don't know what, how it is for the other Gospels, but, you know, if you look at the people who recognize who Jesus truly is throughout the Gospel, it's never the people who probably should have recognized him, but it's always the people, it's his, you know, the supplicants or the people who came to him um, with d- various diseases or sicknesses, the Gentiles at different times. Even the Gentiles can recognize that Jesus is the son of David, but, so, uh, but the Jewish leaders don't, right? Um, yeah, and they're laying down palm fronds and stuff like that. Um, just kind of a really big celebratory scene. And it kind of sets the stage for what's, what's to come, um, coming up next. So, uh, let's see, all right. So the travel entry, you know, first and foremost, you know, donkey. What, what, why, why is he riding on a donkey? What is up with that? Does anybody have any ideas of why that may be? The Zechariah 9.9 reference definitely gives us a little bit of a hint um, about the humility of Jesus' kingship. Um, but the donkey reference, you know, uh, if you think about, uh, think about war times, what are you riding when you go into war? A horse, right? Yeah. Do you want to be riding a donkey when you go into war? No, your legs would be dragging the ground probably, you know? Um, yeah, it's not, it's not an, an animal that is used for war times. It's like the horse, but a, a donkey is something that is used. Oftentimes we look in, you know, the, the, 
The story in 1 Kings 3 with Solomon and his coronation, he's brought in riding a donkey. And so throughout the Old Testament and you know, culturally, this is kind of what's the custom for anointing a king or, or hailing a king when they, when they come to power. They're usually riding a donkey. Um, and so that tells us something you know, about Jesus' kingship itself, especially what he's coming to do, um, even though he is really coming to kind of clash with these Jewish elders. Uh, or the, these Jewish uh, leaders and whatnot, um, he's definitely coming as a peaceful king. He's coming, especially if you look back in the section before, he's you know hailed as a son of David and the end of chapter 20, and he's healing these two blind men. He's a compassionate, he's a merciful king. He's coming um, with to bring peace. Is a you know, the two Old Testament references we have in Isaiah 62, verse 11, the very first statement is kind of pulled from that verse. Uh, and then the rest of it comes from Zechariah 9, verse 9. And we don't have time to really dig into that stuff. The more you get to know me, the more you'll realize I am a big-time Old Testament guy. So I love, 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 love to dig into the weeds about kind of what Matthew's doing here in the backgrounds. But we don't, we don't necessarily have time to do that this morning. But son of David, that's another point. So David, Jesus is coming in as the son of David. He's being hailed as the Messiah, the king, and he's this humble king. And they're crying out, Hosanna, which in Hebrew and Aramaic and really means kind of save us. It's a plea to save us um, is what's going on. And then they're laying down these palm, palm branches. And the palm branches, um, you know, that's a custom in the, as far as the biblical laws go, something that takes place um, in the Feast of Booths. Um, but that's not really what's going on here. It's more if you think about uh, Jehu and what's going on with him. When he comes to power in uh, 2 Kings 9, they lay coats down the road and things like that, kind of paving the way for him. Um, and so that's kind of more of what's going on, not so much uh, the Feast of Booths or anything like that. And then we get the parallel account as well in uh, John chapter 12. And so from here, I have to keep, keep my eye on the clock, so... From here, you guys have already talked about this, but Jesus goes on and you know he cleanses the temple. This is another uh, messianic type of hope. Um, if you look at uh, Isaiah 56 and Jeremiah 7, then he goes on this quote Psalm 8, really referencing you know he says, "Out of the mouth of babes, you know you've prepared praise," and that praise is directed to God in uh, in Psalms chapter 8, and so he's saying the people are praising me as God and. You know, the Jewish leaders are really not liking that. I mean, they already don't like he's coming in, showing himself to be king. They, they think that's blasphemous. He's coming in, he's cleansing the temple, and he's also proclaiming himself as God. And so they're like, we don't like this. We've got to do something about this guy. So um, <clears throat> we've already kind of talked uh, briefly about this, but um, let's talk about kind of more of the second question. So Jesus portraying himself here, as a peaceful king, as a, a, a merciful and compassionate king, how does that subvert the expectations of the Jews when he's coming in to Jerusalem? What were they expecting a king to do for them? Free them from the Roman government? Yeah. Somebody else said something? Yeah, what type of king was he supposed to be? Yeah, that's right, right? Like, oh, that's, yeah. We're to battle, yeah. Yeah, not... Yeah, a powerful warlord, something like that. Yeah, yeah, warrior king, I think was said as well. 
Um, but Jesus shows himself very much to, to come in order to be merciful, to be compassionate. A king that is humble, who is, who is lowly, <clears throat> is, uh, let's see, yeah, humble and mounted on a donkey. Um, but, uh, yeah, so he's definitely subverting their expectations of what they think that the king that they need um, is. And, you know, as far as the palm fronds go, that was the same thing that they did um, when in the Maccabean revolt, at the expulsion of Israel's enemies, they laid down palm fronds, and, uh, and so they're probably expecting while doing this, they're maybe calling to mind kind of these events that have taken place in the last couple of centuries and decades, and probably hoping and expecting, anticipating that Jesus is coming to be enthroned as an earthly king in which he's going to come and dispel Rome and, you know, reestablish Israel. But that's not what he came to do, right? That's not what he was looking, looking, or looking to accomplish in his earthly ministry. So naturally, because of all the things that take place here in, in chapter 22, what's the next question uh, that really gets asked? But, you know, okay, by what authority are you doing these things, right? So pretty natural question if you're in, in, this, in the shoes of these Jewish leaders. So this is what they say um, in verse 23. And when he entered the temple, the chiefs of the priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he'll say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we're afraid of the crowd, for they, are, they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So again, Jesus just totally roasting the toast of uh, these different Jewish leaders. Um, and kind of putting them to shame here. They they can't they know what they should probably say or they want to say, but they know if they say what they really want to say, what's going to happen? Yeah, exactly. They're implicating themselves. The, the the crowd's going to get really upset, just like Herod. Herod was upset for uh, killing and jailing John the Baptist because of the crowds. We see that a lot in kind of Jesus' opponents and the enemies throughout Matthew. They're afraid of what the crowds will do. Um, and so, basically, um, here he kind of shuts them up uh, by kind of giving them this kind of like catch-22 situation. Again, you know, the point being throughout this section is that Jesus is the authoritative teacher of the law. He is the, the king, and there's nobody better than him, right? So they're coming to challenge him. He's going to put them, put them down over and over again, as we're going to see. And so then he gives these three parables, which I want to talk about a little bit, that um, we all know really well, but I think they're just they're really interesting to think about. Um, so first and foremost, you know who who are all these parables directed towards? The leaders, right? Yeah, it's not directed necessarily all of Israel, um, really kind of uh, just the, the specifically the leaders. So it's really interesting too in the parable of the tenants, you know. That's drawing off of Isaiah 5. You think about this, God draws this picture through Isaiah of this, this uh, vineyard that he's, he's built a wall around it. He's planted all these trees and stuff. He's really given like, everything it possibly could have needed. 
um, to be able to thrive, and yet it doesn't produce any fruit. So he rips it all up. And that's representative of the whole nation of Israel, whereas here in the parable, Jesus kind of draws on that, and he says, no, actually it's not about the vineyard. It's about the people who are tending over it, the people who were supposed to be looking after it and watering it, taking care of it. They, they neglected their job, and they neglected my servants. They neglected the other servants I sent. They neglected the master's son now, which is basically Jesus talking about currently right then and there. And uh, so what's going to happen? But he's going to come. He's going to wipe it all away. And so um, when you read these parables, let's just run through them really quick. A parable of the two sons, what's kind of going on there? The parable of two sons. Does anybody, can anybody recall that one? Yeah, right, yeah. And so it's basically saying the Jewish leaders are like, we'll do what you say, Jesus or God. And uh, then they're like, I'm not going to do that, right? But then the sinners are like, I'm not going to do anything that you say, God. But then they, they actually repent and they say, no, I will do. I, I said I wasn't going to, but I am. So the emphasis in this one is really, it's about action, right? It's not about words. It's not about saying, okay, yeah, I'll serve you, God, but then... I actually don't reflect that by my actions. It's saying, even if maybe you initially didn't reflect that in your words, as long as you reflect it in the end in your actions, um, that shows true covenantal loyalty, not just words, right? Uh, what about the parable of the tenants? We kind of hit on that one just a second ago, so maybe we won't really summarize that one as much. But again, the Jewish leaders, these tenants, um, have refused to listen to the master that he sent uh, servants, he sent more servants, you know, really prophets, and then ultimately culminating with the son, with Christ, and they end up killing the guy. They kill him, they kill the son. And so the judgment is really kind of, uh, is, is coming upon them because of their, their neglect to accept Jesus as the king. And this may be foreshadowing possibly, especially the destruction at the end, maybe the judgment that really comes in Jerus- uh, on Jerusalem in, in chapter 24, um, in the coming coming chapter, so something to think about as well. But here he quotes Psalm 118 as well. Again, don't have time to cover it. It's killing me. Um, but if you go back and read it if you've got time, because it's just, man, Matthew is so cool. I, I absolutely love Matthew. His Old Testament stuff is just it's awesome. All right, and then the parable of the wedding feast. What about the parable of the wedding feast? What's going on there? Wedding, right? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, they end up invited, but who who gets invited first? Actual guests, right? He's like, here's some people on the guest list, you know, you get people together for a wedding. Here are the people that I, I need to be there. It's my family. It's the people that should be there, right? Because you don't just, that's the weird thing about this parable, right? If you, ladies especially, do you just get out in the street, everyone come to my wedding, no, <laughs> some of your family may not even be able to get get to your wedding at times. So very selective in the list that in in uh, who comes to your wedding, right? But here, the people that are supposed to be there are like, nah, we don't want to come. And then they send some more people, and they're like, oh, we don't want to come. And they end up like beating people, the messengers stoning people, killing some of them. And so we very similar to the previous one with the tenants, where the message has been sent repeatedly to these leaders, and yet they're not, they're not heeding the call. They're not accepting Jesus, especially, is really um, what, uh, what the parable kind of gets us to. Um, and so, again, kind of with all these parables, it's the emphasis um, 
first one, on the first one, really about action, and then in the last two, really about accepting Christ and uh, as uh, as uh, not just a, merely a prophet or a messenger, but really as the Son of God. Um, and because of you know the Jewish leaders' neglect or refusal uh, to to accept who Christ is, they're they're going to be judged because of that. So. Again, Jesus laying the hammer, and it just gets worse from here. Let me tell you what. They, they think that they can stump him, and it just gets worse and worse for them. It's like they, they just got to stop before they're ahead, but they really just don't understand. Um, so we kind of, let me just ask this question. How, how did Jesus' parables clash with the audience perception of themselves? Who's the audience again? We've already said it. Jewish leaders, right? So... How, I mean, when you put yourself really in the shoes of these people, though, I think when you do that, you understand how stinging these parables would have been. I mean, this would be like somebody, this would be like me coming here today and basically saying, yeah, all of you guys who think you're Christians, yeah, you're not. Yeah, you, you guys, the, actually the prostitute and the crack addict down the street, the ones that have repented, they're the ones who are saved. You, I mean, honestly, that would be like the same type of thing uh, for, for for us in today, if that were to take place, so these parables are really, I mean, this would have infuriated these these Jewish leaders because they're 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 God's covenantal people. They're the ones who've been in the temple. They're offering the sacrifices. They're doing. The, they're following the law, um, as far as they think, at least. Um, and Jesus challenges that, of course. Um, but I, I hope we can kind of see that here um, in this section that these parables would have been incredibly painful to hear for them, and they do not want to hear it, do they? Um, not, not ambiguous either. Uh, verse 45, and then a couple places in the other Gospels, they knew, they perceived that he was talking about them. It's not going over their heads. Yeah. They, get the, they get the point. Yeah, yeah it may be a parable, but it was not, yeah, it was pretty straightforward. One. <laughs> so, yeah, anybody else? Anybody else have a comment on that? I mean, what what is it that they're hanging on to this whole time? Why why won't they listen? I mean, this is this parable is pretty straightforward. I mean, it's all of Jesus' works are very evident that he is a prophet, that God is with him. It's going to be most evident, especially in his vindication and the resurrection in the coming chapters. Uh, but but what what are they holding on to? What's keeping them from from following after Christ? Yeah, the fear that it's about them at the end of the day, right? That it's it's their it's their kingdom, really. It's not really God's. They they may be acting again with words, saying, "God, we're faithful to the covenant," and yet do their actions show that? No, it's all about them. It's about their power. It's about their authority. It's not about Jesus' authority. They don't care about that. They they really care about losing their own authority, and so that's why that's why they keep challenging him. What authority do you use these things? Well. Well, we do these things because we're the leaders of Israel, because we do it according to the law. 
um, because we're, we're the people in authority, right? And so they, they constantly are tr- doing little things to belittle Jesus, to try and catch him, to catch him slipping so they can totally just discredit him as a teacher um, so that maybe they can eventually sway the crowd, which, interestingly enough, you know, the crowd is kind of a very passive uh, group throughout the, uh, the book of Matthew especially, and they're constantly praising Jesus as king at different times and as a prophet here as well in this chapter. Um, but by the end of the book, even though this group from Galilee's really followed him, and, and there may be a distinction between the kind of the crowd that followed him from Galilee that saw these things and the Jerusalem crowd itself. Um, I have to do a little more study on that. But at the end of the day, who is it that puts Jesus to death but the Jewish leaders along with the crowds? The crowds end up being swayed in the end. Um, which is, you know, very interesting as well, after they had seen and also proclaimed the works that Jesus had been doing this whole time, and yet they allowed the Jewish leaders, um, the ones with the credibility and authority, um, to really sway them in the end. Um, And then, what do these parables tell us about the citizenship um, in Christ's kingdom? What, what, What do they tell you about who we're to be as Christians here today? Kind of hit on a few of these already. Yeah, yeah, and who and the the if you look at the parable of uh, the wedding feast, right? Who's invited? The good and the bad, right? So that tells us one thing, right? I mean, does your starting point in the kingdom matter? No, right? It doesn't matter in the sense that it doesn't matter where you came from. It doesn't matter if you came from a stable home, a maybe you're raised by Christians, maybe you grew up and it was a really you had a really rough life. Does that matter when you come to Christ? No, it doesn't, right? What, what, what matters when you come to Christ? What, what gives you entrance into the kingdom um, besides, you know, the grace of Christ, but, but covenantal loyalty, obedience to him, right? Uh, not just through mere words, but actually expressing that, manifesting that through your actions as well. And that's kind of what we see going on in the parables. Because you can say all day, you can have everybody fooled, you know, that you're, I'm, I'm a Christian, I'm living for God, and I can say the right things, I can come to church, do, go through the motions, but unless my actions actually reflect that I'm a transformed person and my mind and my heart is transformed, um, then you know, we may have everybody else fooled, but we, we won't have God fooled. And that's, that was exactly what was going on with the Jewish leaders as well. So, all right, let's see, let's keep going here. So here we kind of get this next section um, where Jesus' authority is challenged again. And we're again, again, and again. They're just okay. That didn't work. What's Plan B? What's Plan C? Because they're going to need a lot of plans, all A through Z, to get get past Jesus, and that still ain't going to work. Um, and so we get four different questions here. This is a really um, kind of well-known section as well. So we get four questions. You know, let's talk about the first one. You know, what's the first question? Is, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Um, so he's kind of. He really stumps them again here, too. This is just awesome. You know, they come, they ask this question, and what's, what's their intention here um, in this, in this, by asking this question? If they say that it's lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, then what is, what's that going to do? Yeah, the crowds are not going to like it, right? Because, again, he's coming in. There's these overtones going on with uh, the Maccabean revolt that happened. The people are anticipating some type of 
um, coup to happen, I guess, or however you would call it. Um, this revolution is probably a better word um, in Jerusalem. And so if he's like, yeah, we should pay taxes to Caesar, that's not going to go over well. They're really not going to like that because these people don't like Rome. And yet he sa- if he says, no, uh, we don't need to pay taxes to Caesar, what does that say? Yeah, Rome is not going to like that, right? It's going to be seen as a revolution. It's going to be something that would get him killed, which ultimately is what happens. But obviously, according to the plan of God, um, as Matthew kind of points out. Um, so Jesus kind of has this, this scenario play out where he says, okay, give me a coin. He gets the coin. He's like, whose image is it? Like Caesar's. And uh, the kind of implication, I think, with this story really is, you know, where are they at? Wait, say it again. Yeah, they're Jerusalem. Where in Jerusalem? Specific place. Temple, right? They're in the temple. He's out, he's here teaching. They're challenging him all at the temple where all this stuff is going on. And he brings his coin out. And the coin would have had the face of Caesar. And the coin at this time, I, I've looked at some research, it would have Tiberius' image um, and uh, it would have said, Caesar Augustus, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. And then on the other side, it would have said high priest. So essentially, what do they have on the coin? They've got an idol, and where are they at? They're in the temple, right? And so he's like, you're basically breaking the second commandment by coming in here. And they were like, ooh, Man, okay, uh, don't really know what to do with that, right? So he stumps them the first question. That's pretty cool, right? I, I, I know it's looking a little bit into the text, maybe a little too much, but that possibly may be kind of what's going on. All right, the next section, in verses 23 through 33, we get a different group of people, and they ask, whose wife will she be? What is, what is this question revolving around? The resurrection, right? And, and who's asking the question? And the Sadducees are Sadducee because they don't believe in the resurrection, right? Yeah. So they're asking this question with the, the assumption already that resurrection is just a dumb idea. Like, that's just not, not something we believe in. It's not going to take place. And so they give this really silly scenario where they're like, okay, well, what if this lady married a guy and then he died and then she married another and he died and on and on and on. Like, okay, well, she's married all these different men, all these different brothers, you know, following the Leverett laws of marriage um, and from Deuteronomy 25. So they're like, okay, well, whose wife is she going to be, Jesus, if resurrection is such a big deal? And Jesus ends up responding using Exodus uh, 3, verse 6, and he ends up saying, let me see here. He says it specifically. He says, first he says, you're wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Oof, already. Um, for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Why, why, why do angels not need marriage? Well, they not have to worry about them. Yeah, procreation because they're not going to... They're not going to die, right? They're eternal beings. What, what, what do they need uh, 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 procreation for, right? And so he continues on um, saying, And as for the resurrection of the dead, you have not read what is said to you by God. I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead but of the living. 
And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. And so Jesus responds here at Exodus 3, verse 6, and basically it's like, you know, if God can be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob simultaneously, even though they're all dead, then the resurre- if he can be the God of all of them, if he can raise the- then he can obviously um, raise them from the dead as well because God has the power... Um, uh, to, he has just amount of, the same amount of power to be able to not just reanimate somebody, but also um, to bring somebody back to like a human human bodily existence. Um, and so they're they're under they're, when he kind of critiques their understanding of God, it's like you don't really understand what God is capable of if you're saying that God can't bring these bring uh, uh, this all these people back from the dead. Um, so he again astounds them um, by his teaching, again, showing himself to kind of be that authoritative teacher again and again and again. And then, all right, they get a lawyer this time. Let's bring in the heavy, right? We've got the lawyer. He's the Pharisee lawyer comes in. He's like, okay, Jesus, I'm going to stump you with this one. What's the greatest commandment? And how does that one go down? What are the two uh, verses that he cites? What's the uh, the? Got to keep going. Uh, <laughs> what's the the summation of the law? How does he basically tie it all together? Love, love, yeah, lo- love God, love other people, right? The Shema passage in Deuteronomy twenty, or sorry, Deuteronomy six four through nine, um, as well as Leviticus nineteen eighteen. So he kind of sums it up there um, through expression of love for God, love for people. Um, all right, we got to keep going. We don't have much time here, so. Um, then the last question is really concerning, who is the son of David? And he gets this, he does this awesome gotcha question where they're like, uh, he says, he asked them this time, um, and he says, uh, uh, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they're like, well, he's the son of David. I mean, we know that. And then he's like, okay, well, what about Psalm 110? Because it says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. It's like, okay, well, if David is saying, the Lord said to my Lord, so if, if, if the king is saying to somebody else that, that he is Lord that he, and somehow this is his son, um, then what do we do with that? Because if the Messiah that's coming through, the, ex, the expectation that the Messiah is coming through, <coughs> or this king is coming through the line of David, and yet the king has greater authority and David recognizes him as his Lord, what do we make of that? And so his point really is to show himself, uh, to, to show that while the, the Pharisees here really, they recognize what is partially true that the Messiah is the, in the lineage of David, what they fail to recognize um, is that he is even greater than David, that Jesus is greater than David, that even though he's the son of David, he is the Messiah, he's the Christ, the son of the living God. Um, all right, let's keep going. So this is the last slide I got this morning. So got a few more minutes to kind of uh, finish off this right here. So we got three really familiar parables here, um, the ten virgins, the talents, and the sheep and the goats. Remind me, what's the ten, ten virgins parable about? Preparation. Preparation, right? The, the, the virgins are coming. They're trimming their whips. You know, they have the oil. Every time I think about this parable, I don't know about you guys, but I think about the Johnny Cash song when the man comes around. The virgins are all trimming their wicks. That's what I think about. So, great song, by the way. Um, he, he was like 
fine wine. You know, only got better with age. Great, great singer. Um, but anyway, so the ten virgins, it's like there's five of them. They're ready. They got their oil ready, got their wicks ready, and then other ones are not ready. Time, it comes time to come, um, and the ones who are ready go in. The ones who aren't don't, right? They get left out in the cold. Um, talents. What about talents? Stewardship, right? Um, about not being paralyzed by fear um, and being active with the things that God's privileged and blessed you with. Whatever amount that may be, you have a responsibility with what you've been given to act um, and to return that to the Father, to, to make an abundance of what he's blessed you with, uh, to make that to grow. And then sheep and goats as well. Travis and I feel like we talked we talk about this for a long time last night when we got in. Um, revolved around a lot of these different things. But yeah, sheep and goats. What's going on in this parable? Dividing a judgment. Yeah, between sheep and the goats, right? Yeah. Um, I had a pair of socks that my mother and I had given me. I had a pair of sheep on one side and goats on the other, and they were called holy socks. Uh, so I always think about those whenever I should have wore those today. Man. Um, but uh, yeah, so the sheep and the goats. And what what is the basis for which God divides these two groups? Yeah, loving your neighbor. Yeah, right, the greatest command. They summed up the law, and they expressed that through doing what? They feed people. They clothe people. People are naked. They clothe them. People are in jail. They visit those people. Um, all those different types of things. You know, uh, they're helping the sick. They're, they're doing, ultimately, what Jesus was doing in his own ministry, right? They're embodying Jesus' teachings, his uh, message, uh, by loving people, by loving God. Um, and so... You know, we don't have enough time to answer the last question, I guess, um, really. Uh, but, you know, just think about this maybe going forward. Uh, we got yeah, literally a minute left. So, um, But, you know, think about how these parables speak to you because these are kind of judgment parables looking forward to Christ's judgment. Uh, again, you know, not only do we learn that Christ is the authoritative teacher in this section, the, the king, the son of God, um, but we also see that he's going to be the judge as well. And we see some of the criteria for the things that he, he desires his disciples to be doing um, in his life. So hopefully, you know, this section will spur you on to maybe, maybe some greater discipleship as well. I know it has for me. So thank you guys for your attention, and uh, that is it. I guess that's how you guys end. So. <laughs>